1: Uh, part of the division of infectious diseases and immune defense, uh, she's part of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. Uh, institute's very well known; it's been around for quite a long time. And she's talking to me from Australia. So, Anna, thanks for coming.
2: It's wonderful to be with you, Richard. Yeah, tell me about your research. So, my research um, focuses on tuberculosis, and I am an immunologist, which means I look at um, how the immune response. Uh, controls and infection. And TB is one of the world's longest, or if not the world's longest running pandemic, um, but often forgotten about, um, despite the, the large number of um, cases of, of each year and the huge amount of um, death that we see.
1: Yeah, what are the approximate numbers? Um, how many people get sick with TB? And, you know, what percentage, what amount recover, what amount die?
2: Yeah, so A lot of our numbers around TB are collected through the World Health Organization. A lot of them are estimates because of the really poor um, reporting. So TB exists um, in sort of more um, lower um, middle-income countries as often the greatest greatest cause of death in those countries. Um, As I said, TB is often forgotten about in in more developed countries, but it did. in the beginning of the sort of 19th century really caused um, a huge amount of deaths as well. Um, And throughout history, TBs caused the most amount of deaths um, for for humankind. So every year, it's estimated we have about 10 million cases. So that's diagnosed symptomatic cases and about 2 million deaths, which um, includes um, a quarter of those are HIV-associated. So TB is also the number one killer of people um, infected with HIV as well. And so that kind of interaction, what we call a sort of a syndemic, these sort of two pathogens, is something that I also research.
1: You know, what causes TB and what happens to a person that gets it?
2: Yeah, so TB is a a bacterial infection. Um, It's transmitted through aerosols, which means you can cough on somebody and and they'll breathe in um, your cough and you'll transmit the bacteria that way. And so it starts off as... um, a lung infection. And that's how um, a large number of people will develop disease within their lung. And you'll see, you know, historically, you've seen people talk about consumption, or you see old movies of people coughing up blood into a handkerchief. That's generally TB, um, because it causes destruction of the lungs. But it can also um, cause what we call disseminated disease. So it can move throughout your body sort of like metastasis and cancer and it can go to um, different organs so we do see bone TB we see um, meningitis TB which is sort of in the the lining of the brain um, you get disease around the lining of the heart and so it's and in people who have HIV we do see a lot more of that kind of dissemination where the couldn't kind of control is um, throughout the body is is really not able to, to be controlled I guess. Um, and, and we see a lot of that in, in children as well. So children get really bad forms of TB often um, in the brain as well. And it's much harder to diagnose in children.
1: What are the reservoirs of TB though? Is it infected people or are there animals or like certain living conditions that seem to be a reservoir for it?
2: Yeah, so super interesting. So, I mean, if you think about, there's a lot of contention about where TB originated from. Um, As I said, it's sort of been with humankind for as long as we can have recorded history. Um, We see it in, you know, mummies um, from Egypt, et cetera. And we once thought that um, we perhaps got it from um, cows, but looking back at the genomic data, it now seems that perhaps we actually gave it to cows where We can also contract, and we did contract bovine TB um, back in the day. And um, pasteurisation of milk was one of the things brought in to actually stop people um, getting TB through drinking um, infected cow's milk. So, so going going back to where the reservoirs are, people who are infected, as I said, primarily get infected with these kind of um, places in the lungs. Um, and so it's thought that it may sit in the lungs in a what was historically called a dormant state. Um, that kind of means the bacteria is not Growing very much and it kind of sits there, and the immune system controls it. And that may be the case, or more likely, we think that actually the bacteria is growing a bit and then the immune system's killing it a bit. And then there's a bit more of a controlled balance there. It may sit in lymph nodes, um, that sort of. Um, One reason, so region that we think might be um, a reservoir, um, but it could actually be sitting in any type of tissue. Um, Autopsy studies have shown that um, bacteria can be found sort of all over the body in people who didn't even get diagnosed with TB or die from TB. So kind of the harder you look, the more we find it. And, And that's something about TB is that there are a lot of unanswered questions that in a way... Is inhibiting the field because we don't understand really the extent of how um, the bacteria persists for such a really long time in people.
1: Well, what is the bacteria that, that causes TB, and are there different forms of it?
2: Uh, it's it's called um, Mycobacterium tuberculosis. So it's a it's a mycobacterium. One of the unique things about TB is that it's a really slow growing bacteria. It makes which makes it hard to study in the lab. So. If you grow people who work on E. coli, maybe you've heard of E. coli, you know, really fast-growing bacteria. TB takes 16 hours to double. So you have one bacteria and then 16 hours later, you'll have two bacteria. So if you think about that, it takes us, say, two to three weeks to be able to kind of grow up a culture in the lab to to work with it or even see the bacteria, to be able to count it, which makes our experiments really, really long and really hard to work with. The bacteria has a really interesting cell wall like an envelope a really thick envelope around it which makes it hard for drugs to get in um, hard for us to be able to to kill it um, it's one of the unique things about the bacteria um, and kind of what are the components of that cell wall of the bacteria um, are unique ways uh, as ways that it activates the immune system as well we, we can get infected with some other types of, uh, of of TB so there's um more ancient strains which of course are called, uh, mycobacterium africanum which exists in in West Africa, and they, they form part of this TB complex, as we call it. Um, so there are certain different types of um, sort of mycobacterium that do cause TB-type disease.
1: When you say mycobacterium, it's like uh, mm. fungi-related. So why is it called mycobacterium? What's special about it that gives it that fungi-seeming name?
2: Um. Perhaps more the, it might be the the the, the lipid polysaccharide um, cell wall. Um, it's, yeah, you're right. So mycology could be more seen as a, um, yeah, fungal infection, but this is just a um, a mycobacterium. Um, why it has a similar name? I've never really thought about it, <laughs> to be honest, but it's it's definitely a, a bacterium. Um, and, yeah, so it might be that cell wall component, which is kind of a unique thing about it.
1: Oh, okay. So studying this bacteria, it is culturable, although it's very slow, what you're saying. Um, has anyone looked at the metabolomics of it, uh, the transcriptomics, you know, the, the phages that prey upon it? There have there been antibiotics yep. created that affect it? Like, you know, I'm sure I would hope that TB has been studied extensively.
2: Yeah, it really has. Yeah. Um... And people are developing phages, for example, as ways of targeting. We're using um, Bill Jacobs at, um, at Einstein is actually really developing these kind of unique fluorescent reporter phages that we can get into bacteria as a way of detecting, um, as well as using them as um, ways of, I guess, developing better kind of cellular models that we can actually detect the bacterium early, for example. As I said, it's difficult to study because it does take a long time to, to grow up. So um, lots of people work on um, the metabolism of the bacteria um, and trying to understand um, new drug targets, for example. Um, and as so one of the reasons why it's difficult to often treat um, is because of this slow-growing sort of metabolism of the bacteria, which means normal drug targets, drug, which target replicating bacteria, don't work very well when you have these um, somewhat dormant, um, non-replicating bacteria. So that's one of the difficulties in treating it. And perhaps treating earlier stages where the bacteria is not growing, most of our drugs don't work.
1: Does it have a stage where it uh, it goes into uh, you know like a spore formulation, or does it have a life cycle? Like, does it form biofilms? You know, what else is known about it?
2: Yeah, no, no, it doesn't form spores. It does have um, interesting secretion system. So, um, it. It's not necessarily thought to secrete toxins, for example, So, um, but it does secrete virulence factors, um, which will activate the immune system. So the um, CFP10 so through the ex 61 one secretion system um, induces interferon gamma response within the host. Um, and actually, if you knock out that locus, it does become um, an avirulent um, bacteria. And, and BCG, which is um, the kind of bovine form of TB, which was developed into the... The only TB vaccine um, is actually missing that that locus, um, so we do know that these secretion systems are really important um, for the bacteria um, pathogenicity. Um, there's a lot about the bacteria we don't understand. There's a very large um, what are called PPP repeat regions within the genome, um, which they're highly repetitive regions, and they're thought to potentially contain contain virulence factors, but Conventional sequencing technology was really poor at um, getting accurate sequences because of that, that repeat region and the slippage. And so using nanopore technology or sort of PAC-BIO, we're getting more long-read sequencing technologies to be able to look within these regions and see what they may be contributing to the pathogenicity of the bacteria. So that's all really recent research that's been coming out um, over in the last few years. So as our technologies are developing um, that we're learning a lot more um, and trying to sort of treat
1: the bacteria differently. Well, okay. So I mean, what is it doing in the various body parts? Is, what does it look like if, uh, you know, samples are taken from cadavers or from live people, mm-hmm. the bacteria just proliferates. And I mean, what does it do? Like, you know, does it do specific things and different body tissues? Does it interact with, you know, various tissues in different ways?
2: Yeah. So I guess that's, for me, that's the interesting thing, right? So, so I, I work on the host response to the bacteria. Typically, you think about treating a bacterial infection, you develop drugs to treat, to kill the bacteria, and that's how you resolve it. The thing about TB is that most people who get infected don't develop disease. And as I said, TB is such a historic um, bacteria and kind of um, human pathogen that essentially we co-evolved. Um, and you can see that if you trace the um, evolution of the bacteria, we see different, I guess, clades, um, what we call sort of ancient and modern strains, and there are different lineages of TB. And we see that they actually correspond to human migration patterns out of Africa and how um, then populations grew in either sort of Asia or North America, et cetera. And then we see that colonization back into um, Africa actually brought these different strains then back in. Um, so we think that there's a lot of, um, it could be even symbiosis in a way, that the, that the bacteria and the host have sort of co-evolved, right? Which means that the majority of people have a very good immune system that they can control it and not develop disease. So my work is focusing on trying to understand well, well, in the people who do develop disease, what goes wrong? And can we understand actually where this protective immune response has led to a detrimental response which leads to disease, So as I said, the bacteria doesn't release toxins, it doesn't um, degrade the tissue in any way that, you know, causes pathology. The pathology is caused by an exacerbated immune response to the bacteria. And so it's an immune pathology, which generally destroys the lung by the host factors destroying the lung matrix. And that's one of the things I work on, is trying to understand how host cell death, immune cell death, which is one form of how the the host cell tries to kill the bacteria actually leads to breakdown of organ, organ function and tissue function.
1: Well, what happens specifically? What does the host response look like? What does it
2: mean? So primarily we think that, you know, macrophages um, as phagocytes are the first cells which um, take up the bacteria. So I work on macrophages and also neutrophils is sort of the other major phagocytic cell. Neutrophils have you know, they're very short-living cells and they kind of either die from apoptosis, which could be a protective response, or they can die from um, an acrotic form of cell death called um, neutrophil extracellular traps, which is when they essentially um, unwind their DNA um, and they have decondensed chromatin and this DNA mixes with the, the proteins within the granules of the neutrophil, and then they're released in a, a web-like fashion as the, the cell dies. And that's done to to trap extracellular bacteria um, and try to kind of mop everything up, right? Um, but because the the nets are the proteins within the nets have a lot of um, enzymes which are involved in matrix destruction. That's there to allow cellular infiltration to assist in um, combating that um, infection that's there. But when you have a continual cycle of that, a non-resolving um, inflammation, that's when you end up um, destroying the tissue around it. So, so essentially, um, my work is trying to understand what controls the balance between an acute response, which is beneficial, to then what turns into chronic inflammation and a chronically bad response, which then um, you know destroys the tissue.
1: Well, alright, so. I mean, has anyone tried to develop antibiotics against this bacteria? Or like what, what has been tried so far and what, what's happened? What's unique and different about this? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: We do have um, antibiotics. The And, you know, they came through to the 40s, the 50s. Um, and that's how we sort of first got on top of the TB epidemic. Um, it's been a really slow um Developmental pipeline, I guess. Since then, um, as um, more developed countries, the epidemic um, was, con- you know, get came under control. TB began to be forgotten about in a way, and when HIV came along, um, particularly that then led to those individuals, as I said, were at increased risk of developing TB, and and we started seeing the epidemic take off again. Um, And that's where more focus came back on TB. So there was a number of probably decades where there was little investment in TB research Um, and only the last couple of decades as there's been more sort of money put back into it again. And so new drugs and new drug classes are trying to target, as I said, different um, metabolic states of the bacteria. And there are some new drugs um, which are coming out essentially one of the ways we tried to deal with the epidemic was was instigate uh, what is called directly observed therapy. Um, And this came about because poor treatment regimes were being used and that was leading to a lot of drug resistance emerging um, because of the long time requirement of treatment. So we generally need six months of therapy. Um, And so DOTS, which is this directly observed therapy um, was initiated by the WHO. Um, which essentially means that every day you come to the clinic and, and someone observes you taking your drugs um, for this you know, six-month period. So you can imagine what that does to an individual, their ability to have a normal life when every day they have to go to the, the hospital just to have their meds because someone has to observe them because no one trusts them to take their meds, right, which means that we have a very singular approach to treatment now. It was a way of getting on top of the epidemic, um, but now everybody gets treated in exactly the same way until we determine that you have a drug-resistant infection and then you actually need to go on um, generally therapy for two years Um, and still there's only really a 50% success rate in in treatment um, for drug-resistant TB.
1: What does the immune response look like to TB? Has that been observed, you know, the macrophages that try to engulf the bacteria or,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. you know, do they release substances to lyse the bacteria? Like what's the response look like normally?
2: So a good, a good response um, would be the, the macrophage, phagocytoses it, um, puts it into phagosome, um, phagosome gets, you know, um, lysosome fusion and then you get degrad- degradation of the bacteria and thus control of the infection. That's what should happen, you know, um, with any normal bacteria. As I said, this um, E6-1 secretion system with the e 6 and CFP-10, they they put pores into the phagosome membrane um, and actually then activate the gamma system. And by degrading, sort of putting pores in the membrane, the first thing that the bacteria does is try to escape the phagosome. Um, It arrests phagolizosome maturation. So you don't get that degradation. And that's the first way the bacteria sort of begins to survive within the macrophage.
1: Wait, so it's after it's been engulfed, it tries to poke holes and like kind of, it's like a whale swallowing someone and the, and the person's trying to like rip out through their stomach.
2: Yeah. You know I mean? Yes. <laughs> nice analogy. Yep, exactly. So yeah, it's exactly punching through the phagosome and it can escape into the cytosol. It, it does some very interesting things. So, you know, as I said, part of these um, virulence factors, which it secretes, um, ss 6 CFP10, it's been shown that, you um, it can actually shuttle those to for antigen presentation and essentially release vesicles which contain that. Um, Other um, phagocytes will then actually take those up and then you'll get sort of, you know, presentation of non-infected cells who are presenting antigen. And it's thought that, um, and the infected cell will not present the antigen, but release um, the reolence factors through these vesicles.
1: The bacteria is causing the, Phagocytes, to release customized extracellular vesicles that are signaling other macrophages to do what?
2: Um, who then, I guess, take up the, those, those vesicles, and Ooh. then they present antigen. So you can then imagine that T cells coming in recognize non-infected cells who are presenting processed antigen, and they're not recognizing infected cells because the bacteria is inhibiting that cell um, presenting.
1: Oh, it's inhibiting the presentation of, of antigen. Yeah.
2: Yes, the infected cell would be inhibiting, but re- releasing these vesicles, which are then taken up by you know, macrophages in the environment. Um, and then they take up those vesicles and then actually present those antigens. So you get influx of T cells, but the T cells then are re- recognizing the non-infected cell versus the infected cell.
1: What's, what's confusing the uh, T cells so that they don't recognize infected cells? Like What's changed about the... Uh, it sounds like the vesicles are doing it. But what is changing about the, the T cell itself, where it doesn't recognize, you know, it's still right. it's still alive, but it, why doesn't it recognize infected cells now? Or
2: well, that, that, that one study I was um, explaining sort of showed that it's not, it's stopping the infected, the infected macrophage presenting the antigen, um, despite the fact that it's kind of releasing the antigen via these vesicles, right? So oh, it's okay. releasing via vesicles, but stopping the normal transport process to presentation.
1: So, okay, I see what you mean. So it's infecting, the macrophages are doing their job eating the bacteria. The bacteria, it's like, you know, it's like that picture of the, I think it was a stork eating a frog and the frog's arms have come out of the throat to like strangle the stork to stop it. But, um, all right. So I see what you mean. So they're, they're making the um, the phagocytes, they're infecting them, they're stopping them from consuming them and they're also making it look like they're not infected as well, the phagocytes. So maybe that signals the rest of the body not to produce as many as they normally would because it thinks they're on the scene and working
2: yeah or or, it, or it's kind of come in but actually target another cell and maybe you want to kill that cell so you kind of kill the good cells the non-infected cells and then you then you don't kill the infected cells it's kind of the way that the bacteria kind of subverts the immune response for its benefit to survive and kind of probably cause damage to other to other cells. I guess if you think about it, what the bacteria requires for its life cycle to perpetuate is transmission, right? And for transmission to occur, it requires lung matrix breakdown because that essentially it needs to escape the macrophage, get into the tissue, extracellular space, and have the tissue breakdown such that it can actually get into an airway Um, and cause enough damage that you cough, (laughs) potentially, um, and then actually then can transmit, right? So the bacteria requires the host to um, essentially degrade itself and have a bad response to perpetuate. If um, most people, perhaps the the good response essentially is macrophage phagocytose, they um, present, they recruit T-cells, we get more cells coming in and and essentially you form what's called a granuloma, which is a a complex of macrophages, neutrophils, T-cells, B-cells, etc., which form like a ball, classically a ball, um, in which walls off the bacteria from the rest of the body um, to prevent escape. And we see that um, you do see granuloma classically within lungs and you can see what's called the gone focus, which is, what we thought is the sort of primary side of infection in the in the lower lungs. And you see that, you can even see that on sort of CT scans where you have a really dense um, sort of even a calcified nodule and you get like a little discrete nodule in the lungs, which could be this controlled infection site. Um, and that might be how many people respond. Um, it's when that controlled response breaks down um, and the ability for um, a really balanced um, immune response to control that granuloma and not allow the bacteria to escape and not allow the bacteria to cause cell death. Um, because if you have more cell death, then you lose the control of that little structure.
1: Well, is the goal of the bacteria just to proliferate or is it to infect cells more and be more virus-like? I mean, like when it infects a macrophage, can it does it keep the macrophage alive for a long time? Like what happens to it? What's the fate of it?
2: It does it does replicate quite a lot um you can see as i said it, it is a, it's a slow replication so you may get you know doubling in a day etc um but there is a stage where you'll end up with if it continues to replicate it, if it escapes into the cytosol for example and, and replicates then yes you will end up with different forms of, of potential cell death um, I work on sort of pyoptosis, necroptosis, these kind of inflammatory um, forms of cell death to see how the bacteria triggers that. What we have found is that different clinical strains of TB can elicit essentially different forms of even cell death or different degrees of cell death, I would say. And one of the things that my work is look, trying to look at is the people, some people have really bad Cavities, So it really bad TB where the cavities is when there's a really large destruction of the lung matrix. Some people present with TB and don't really have these large cavities. Um, but the kind of cavitary lesions are associated with really high bacterial load. Um, the bacteria actually does seem to then grow in that kind of airspace within the cavity in the lung. And you see in a way do get like a biofilm and the bacteria really loves to grow there. Um, and that's a really great way for it then to transmit um, sort of high bacterial burden. Um, so that's like so niche
1: niche construction, but but do you know what happens inside the uh, again the macrophages that are infected? Do the bacteria have a long lifetime in there? Like what uh, you know? Do they do they tend to come at you know? Do they hide from the immune system and then they kill the macrophage and eat it and use it as a material and then grow or like what what happens to them?
2: Yeah, so they uh, they, so they do use the material and grow. Um so we have sh- seen that in our cultures if we, you know, if we even lyse the macrophages, you'll get a lot more extracellular growth um of the bacteria compared to having bacteria in a well without these kind of lysed macrophages. So they certainly use the macrophage carbon as a carbon source for, for increased growth. And I think that could be one reason why they actually like to kill the the cells and then live in that extracellular space because they feed off of it. Um, they often take the, the cholesterol from the ma- the macrophage. Um, it's your question though around: do they like to see it and replicate or do they kill? Um, the reason why I can't give a good answer to that is because each cell actually seems to respond differently. It's not a it's not a homogeneous response, and this is one of the most complicated things with TB. Um, we do a TV lot under- of um, each,
1: each cell type.
2: Um, I think if you so we do my work focuses on we very much use human cells we always make human primary macrophages but when you do that you'll have heterogeneity even within a culture right and so this kind of subpopulation level heterogeneity means that each macrophage may respond differently and it may be determined by perhaps how many bacteria it initially encounters um certainly if you like whack a culture with you know MOI of around 10, you're going to kill these macrophages and they're going to go into necrosis really quickly. If you do low MRI, which is what we do, um, to try and see what happens if, you know, you may infect 10% of the culture and then monitor that over time, even after seven days, you'll get a lot of cell death still. But that cell death is increased if you take different clinical strains with different cell wall phenotypes. Um, so there's a there's an interaction between the host and the bacteria, which in some certain combinations... Is really bad, um, and as I said, so some people can control and some people don't control very well. Um, and my work is trying to focus on what are what are the different um, sort of subpopulation responses, and we're looking at single cell level to really try and tease that apart. Um, what is a state where the bacteria doesn't grow well versus versus does grow well?
1: In an advanced TB infection, what do you see? Do you see a lot of you know TB bacteria everywhere, or do you see relatively few ones? And is it surprising? And instead, you see like a lot more niche construction and cell death. Like what appears to be the end game of TB within a given tissue? What does it tend to do?
2: Yeah, I guess the, the end game certainly is. Um, if you look in in you know autopsy specimens, for example, or just even even biopsies. Um, you will see extracellular bacteria either in the, the casium, which is kind of the liquefied necrotic centre of a of a lesion. Either a cavity is full of casium. It's just dead cell debris, which is where the bacteria um, can often be. You will also see the bacteria within cells still. So it will exist in both states. Um, but certainly it needs to escape into the extracellular matrix to, to get to a disease state because essentially when we're finding When we're diagnosing people, it's like end stage. And my work, we have been using um, sort of high-resolution PET-CT imaging as a way to look at early infection in in recent TB contacts. And um, when we do that, that only really detects um, inflammation um, using the PET response, which is a a measure of um, essentially it's a radioactive glucose analogue. So it measures metabolically active cells, which are primarily the, the neutrophils and macrophages responding to that infection. And we can see really strong um, responses and inflammation on the lung and people that last for years before they before we can sort of detect the bacteria um in their in their cough, in their sputum. But it doesn't mean it wasn't there before. It just may have been controlled perhaps in that um within the cellular milieu and not actually, I guess, degraded the matrix enough that allows the bacteria to escape.
1: Well you said that you said when you're when you're able to see it, it's usually quite advanced to even diagnose it but um again if you look at let's say a deceased person recently from tb what does their tissue look like is it just a massive abundance of you know tb bacteria or is it more mm-hmm. fewer ones that are in biofilms and there's like niche construction going on like yeah if you were to guess and look look forensically at you know a whole bunch of people that have died from tb looking at the tissue mm-hmm. like forensically what would it what does it tell you what do you see that's is there anything unusual you see or what do you see
2: what, what you see is that um, the normal architecture of the of the organ is destroyed. So you'll have massive immune infiltrates, you know, so a lung should be a, a, a gaseous sac, you know, it's, it's full of alveoli. But what you have, conversely, is just massive immune infiltrates so that the lung matrix is just wiped out. And then within those areas of infiltration, you've got areas where what we call is this cassius necrosis. So you'll end up with, it's like a liquefied, you can be a, even, a, some of the times it can be calcified um, and sometimes it's liquefied, um, which is just de- cell debris. And the bacteria, we do see a lot of bacteria in that area. It's actually thought that part of the difficulty in treating TB is that the bacteria that's within that casium, so really high bacterial numbers, it's very hard for the drugs to get into because there's not enough vasculature to get the drugs in. And the drug and the bacteria in that kind of sort of a fat, it's even a kind of a fat, fatty state in a way, is also kind of could also be slow growing and doesn't respond to the, back, the different drugs. And certainly it's been shown using um, certain imaging techniques that we can see which drugs get into that area or not. Um, and some drugs can't even like kind of penetrate that that part of the lesion um, but there are a lot of bacteria there um, but you also get some people who don't have that much bacteria um, people do p- present differently um, but as well, when I said, they do
1: like, what's different so some have a lot of bacteria some don't Yeah. but what else is very different about you know what you see are you surprised that some people have died at all. Does it not make sense? Or does it always make sense because the the tissue is just so modified and destroyed, whether or not there's a lot of bacteria in it?
2: Often, I guess, perhaps the reason for dying is when you, obviously your your lungs do, I, I guess, if you don't have enough oxygen exchange, you're going to die, right? So that's part of, I guess, one of the causes of death will be that um, your lungs are no longer functionable. I guess the interesting thing about TB is you'll have some people, and actually quite a lot of people may have a discrete lesion cavity in the right upper lobe. We often see that you can have one part of a lung infected um, with disease and another whole part of a lung with, with no apparent abnormality. So some people present with unilateral disease, while some people present with like extensive bilateral disease, um, extensive cavitation, et cetera. So that's where people present differently. Um, And as I said, some people also develop spinal TB um, or or meningitis TB, um, where the bacteria can escape and and, um, lead to disease in those areas. And so, again, that's where in the spine you'll get a breakdown of the bone matrix and you'll end up with deformities. Um, And so those kind of end stages really causing destruction to to organ function because the tissue structure itself is, is degraded.
1: Are you able to tell that the degradation is because of the host immune response or could there be other reasons why there's such tissue degradation?
2: Mm-hmm. And that is something that we're looking at. So we've looked at um, sort of MMPs for a long time as these matrix um, metalloproteinases as enzymes, which um, degrades a collagen, elastase, etc., which is the kind of the structure of the tissue. And that is, is sort of part of the work we're doing, looking at, at the nets and how the nets will, will degrade that. Um, I'm actually starting a project now to look at um, spinal TV to actually look at the pathology within those lesions to learn more um, about what's causing um, that matrix breakdown. Um, as I said, one of the interesting things about lesions sometimes is, is that they do become calcified, um, even within, within the lungs, so you have these sort of calcified nodules. Um, and so there's a question around how bacteria may even modulate sort of um, immune cell programming to become, I guess, more kind of (laughs) even bone-like, right? If you have stem cells within the lung, myeloid cells and bone cells are sort of the same lineage, right? So you could potentially even think about um, sort of reprogramming stem cells into becoming more um, sort of even osteobastic cells perhaps. And so maybe the bacteria is modifying um, even that that bone process um, and and ossification. So these are kind of questions we we really don't understand, um, but we're beginning to um, think about them. Um, There's some recent research showing that um, the bacteria can also exist within stem cells and modify the stem cell differentiation program such that you get different phenotypes of of myeloid cells coming out from the bone marrow itself. That's sort of in some animal models.
1: So uh, I don't know, do you feel like you're close to uh, any breakthrough in understanding of the immune system in TB or is it just, I mean, like what... what do you have currently like what are you going to be testing over the next year or so to figure things out
2: yeah so i, th- I think i think we have i mean i have said i've tried to i guess i've described a lot of complexity but um i said my research really tries to understand individual response and the interaction with the bacteria um, and we have been identifying um a number of of host cell death pathways which we are identifying um, sort of small molecule inhibitors to um, prevent that that cell death and actually lead to a better resolution of the um, infection. So we will like to try and put those into um, sort of host-directed therapy trials. Um, and so my work is trying to think about not just treating the bacteria with um, an antibiotic, but actually trying to um, treat the individual and potentially um, the kind of immune dysfunction of that individual which is leading to disease um, and so we want effectively want to pair um, antibiotic therapy with host-directed therapy um, with the idea that we want to resolve um, the inflammation and lead to better outcomes of treatment often if we you know most what we're seeing is that you know people are treated with antibiotics as this kind of baseline therapy Um, And we we do recognise there is essentially what's called sort of post-TB sequelae because people do end up having poor lung function afterwards. Um, TB treatment is not a cure because people who have TB are at the highest risk of getting TB again, um, if if infected again. Um, And that's sort of some of the, I think, some of the poor language that's used um, when people are told that they're going to receive therapy is often they think that they're, they're kind of cured and won't get it again but actually they're at high risk of getting it again. Um, and I think a lot more work needs to go into, you know, what therapy can we give those people to actually, you know, improve um, the immune response such that on a subsequent exposure, they don't get TB again because that's, that's the, I guess, one of the big perpetuators of um, the disease and high burden settings. Okay. Well,
1: well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go?
2: Oh, they can um, find me um, at Twitter at Anna Cousins, um, and also um, on the WeHi website. You can look me up there.
1: Okay. Well, very good, Anna. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it.
2: No worries. Thanks so much, Richard.
1: If you like this podcast,
0: please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.